Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. There it is. You hit a button, and then suddenly everyone gets to hear what you're saying. Welcome to 2020. Well, I got to tell you guys, I'm excited for my guest today. She is really cool, first of all. And we've had just a few conversations already, uh, but it's all about humanity. It's all about bringing humanity back into business. And then really as marketers and people in sales, like how can we get this back into our process? How can we be more human? So let me, let me just tell you all the things about her. Uh, mm -hmm. Best-selling author. She's been featured in the New York Times, which I was even looking at today, Forbes Woman, Wall Street Journal, keynote speaker. She's literally speaking to over 50,000 people, six countries, um, founder of the Human Process Continuum, founder of Corna Partners, Hillary Corna. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So there's so many things going on here. You are a busy, busy person. <laughs> um, let, let's... Let's really, we're talking about humanity and getting humans back in the humans, humanity back into like our business and our marketing. So I want to pass it to you and I want to pass this thing to you. Hold on. It's heavy. Oh God. I got it. Okay. Here you go. Thor's hammer. Take the handle. You got it. Love it. All right. Okay. Oh, wow. You just one handed that thing. That was crazy. So um, take that and smash for me some kind of myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Just set the record straight once and for all. Automation is not always the answer. Ooh. Automation will amplify whatever your process is, whether your process is good or bad. That's so, so true. Is automation fantastic? Yes. But if you have a poor operation that is not designed for the betterment of either the customer or the employee, it will just get amplified even larger. So, yeah, this is kind of funny because, you know, I am Mr. Marketing Automation. So I tell myself every morning, but you're right. It isn't, that's not the thing you go to first. You go to that. If you go to that first, my goodness, you can like, to your point, amplify the worst marketing, the worst business practices in the world. Now everyone gets your terrible email. Now everyone gets your horrible business process. Uh, it's not the place to start with. Do you see a lot of people just kind of knee jerk going to, Oh, there's a tech that does something. Let me automate. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the focus of the last, decade of business has obviously been driven by the rise in entrepreneurship and venture capital funded companies. And as a result, it's all about growth scale. There's nothing wrong with growth and scale, but when you're forcing or shoving processes down people's throat that aren't really pushing them down your pipeline, but they're just forcing them down your pipeline, they're not journeying them or guiding them, they're controlling them, that's where processes go wrong. So the perfect example of this is when you hop on a website, you're getting to know a company, and before you know it, a banner pops up, a sign-up window pops up, and a chatbot pops up, and you think to yourself, oh my God, this is annoying, and I don't even know what they do yet. Now, of course, that's UX, but it's an easy example. Yeah. Same thing when you walk into restaurants, there's certain processes that are sometimes overbearing. Or when you start to work with a professional services agency, and you know they, as soon as they sell you, they hand you over to um, their services or onboarding piece stage of the experience, and you out of nowhere get 18 notifications. You're onboarded on Basecamp. You're onboarded on here. You're onboarded by here, and you're just being shoved down 
through other people's processes that are convenient for the company, but are not ideal for the customer. And that's when you get buyer's remorse. So marketing, you work so hard to get those prospects into the funnel. And then very often through automation, you lose more than you really want to be losing because the automation is not designed to really understand the buyer's journey and to really understand the needs of the prospect. It's designed for what's best for the company. It makes total sense. When you're describing that, like forcing them rather than letting them, like you even said, like letting them doing the journeying through the process rather than letting, letting them discover and do their things. It's like, we're, Oh no, 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 go this way, go this way, go this way. It's like, we're all in line for TSA. Like we, we have no <laughs> options. Nobody likes that. Even in those adventure books, choose your own adventure books. Yeah. Technically you only have two choices or three sometimes, but at least you have choices. But when you just sort of force people in there, the image that came to my mind was like treating your buyer like they're a, a model T Ford, you know, like in a factory somewhere. And it's like, you're going well, to you say that. Yeah. That's where it was all derived from, right? The industrial revolution yeah. gave us the nine to five, gave us productivity, gave us efficiency in a way that human race had never used before. And then we took that and we applied it to technology. Now it's been fantastic. It's elevated humans to be working on incredible things. However, when we start to treat our customers and our buyers like machines that's where we can start to anger and aggravate them more than we want especially during the buying process so it's not necessarily that automation is a bad thing it just has to be used as we would say at toyota at the right time at the right place with the right tool mm. so as an example i don't know about you but like the perfect example i always face is as a buyer depending on what you're buying when you go to the contact us page of a website very often I get deterred when the contact us page requires this extensive amount of information. Like I'm not going to give you all this information up front. Like I just have a couple quick questions and consumers aren't um, dumb anymore. Consumers aren't ignorant. They're more informed than ever before. They know that the moment they give you your email, their email address, that they're headed down a pipeline of emails. And so, you know, we have to really recognize that and be truthful that, People know what they're getting themselves into and recognizing that the process has more power and your automation has more power when you alter it so that it reflects that exact stage of your customer. Every customer is very different, um, whether they're buying on marketing automations or professional services, whether they're buying knitting tools on a website, like what they want to do at that stage of your buying process, whether still being a prospect or being a qualified lead depends on the scope and core, you know, uh, demographics and psychographic of that customer. And so you have to get really in their head and it's just the difference between short-term versus long-term game automation. It, you know, if you want to pump a bunch of people down your automations and you have scale, you have millions of, you know, email registrations in your, in your list then you'll probably still get an outcome. Yeah. But for most people that are following you, you know, either startups or at least small SMB companies, they don't have millions of followers and you know, email lists like Nike does, right? And so you have to be more gentle and understanding and compassionate towards what your customers want. And that's highly requires you to have like a very, very strong pulse on your customer sentiment. Yeah, it's to your point the the long term play versus the short term. How many people can I squeeze out of this 
you know, it's like you're trying to get the last bit of toothpaste out. It's like, okay, at some point, just, okay, good. You, you tried your best, like get another roll now. It's, it's you're not going to get any more. Like you can't do it. Um, but and you, you'd say, go ahead. Yeah. With automation, the way I phrase it is automate what can be replicated mm. and humanize the extraordinary. So automation has a time and a place. Um, but most of the times what I hear from clients I've helped or um, peers in the workplace is, hey, how do I do more automation? How do I, how do I use automation to improve my business? When really the question you should be asking is, how do I use automation to improve my customers' lives? Very different question. Very, very different question. You will get better outcomes if you ask the latter question. If you ask the first question, you might get efficiency and productivity on you know, the back end. You might improve your labor efficiency ratio. You might improve your EBITDA, but you're going to piss off a lot of customers in, in the scope of doing that. You can use automation all day long and it can actually be at the detriment of either your employees or your customers. Yeah. I think sometimes to your point, thinking about EBITDA and whatnot, um, by the way, do you want to explain what those uh, numbers or those? Uh... Essentially, you know, when we talk about automation, efficiency, productivity, they're all aiming at the same thing. And it's this machine like, like ultimate goal. How do we operate more like a machine? Hmm. Uh, and so when we set, which comes from the industrial revolution. So when we say, you know, aiming towards efficiency and productivity, you're just basically trying to drive outcomes that improve your bottom line profitability. So you're saying, hey, if we can cut costs, if we can make this cheaper, cheaper or faster or easier, then our profitability improves, our EBITDA improves. But that often will totally disregard the mindset of your customer and the stage at which they're buying from you. Right. So all, you know, all sales processes, including marketing, have a pipeline. And they have stages from prospect to pitch to close, right? No matter who you are, what business you're in, prospect to pitch to close. But that's the company's perspective. From the customer's perspective, if you flip it on its head and really think more with a customer-centric mindset, you're looking at a customer that has a need to be filled. They're then figuring out their options, and then they're then making a decision. Right. So you need to think in their mindset at the stage of having a need to be filled, what is it that they want to hear? How frequently do they want to hear from you? To what extent do they want to hear from you? And get so deep in their head that you're giving them exactly what they need just before they need it, and that's where you'll get better outcomes. And that's the long-term game. The short-term play is drive automations, drive productivity, and in the short-term be more profitable, but you might actually not get long-term results, and you might shove people down your funnel but they might not stay with you for very long because you gave them such an aggravating experience. Yeah. I, I think so many times companies are thinking about in the short term play, I'm thinking percentage. I'm thinking about like the 5% of people who are ready to buy right now. Hopefully it's five and not one, but there's some small, tiny percent of people who are like ready to go right now. And when these terrible nurtures or these terrible automations happen, some people are we're just ready to go anyways. And so you think, Oh, this works. Unfortunately, you just ticked off like another, 80, 95% of people who are not ready. They're just shopping. They're early and you've alienated them. It's like you got the short-term, you know, winner too, but maybe it was going to happen anyways, but you've really shot yourself in the foot for all the future business and all the other people on your list. Yes. 
And you know, it's interesting. One of the examples I see of this very often is they, uh, the funnel for marketing is so strong that they get a ton of people to sales, but then by the time those quote qualified leads get to sales, they're actually not the right fit customer. And that creates waste in the sales process because then you have your sales team talking to, you know, a good chunk of your customers, uh, I'm sorry, a good chunk of your prospects that actually aren't even your qualified leads. So that's an example where actually you can have a flip result. It might be, it might look like good outcomes on the front end with the sales, with the marketing pipeline, but on the back end, you're creating waste because you're basically shoving unqualified leads to the sales team when I believe in a more for more mentality. I believe in quality over quantity. I'd rather be sending sales with the right people rather than a shit ton of people and then hope a couple of them are right. And this is just a choice in business that we have to make all the time. Um, in Toyota, during my time abroad, we would say it's better to spend 60% of your time planning as a rule of thumb to get better results than to act fast and deal with crappy results and have to fluff through them to find a good answer. So this is what I see as a result of this past decade of the rise of agile growth, rapid growth, 10x scale, is that we pride ourselves as Americans, we pride ourselves or Westerners in general on taking action, moving forward, hoping something sticks along the way. When really, if we just took a little bit more time on the front end to think more thoroughly about it, we'd have better results in the back end. And so this goes back to the short-term versus long-term game. Amazing. And not only that, but sometimes we, we're treating our buyers like they're still in the 60s. Like, hey, Lucky Strike will make you strong. Go smoke them today. And it's like, nah, no, it, you, you brought this up. The buyers know. They're a lot smarter. They're a lot more educated. You put an email address down there in the contact form. They know that you're probably going to spam them. If you put a phone call, you know, like a phone number, they're going to call you. And then yep. the goofy people you mentioned, like if you ask them, oh, what's your salary? Or I've seen, you know, what's your revenue? It's like, well, oh, you're asking my money just so you can take more of it away. Like no one's dumb. You're not just putting these things on a form thinking uh, they won't know. We're going to trick them into getting into our into our, our nurture, our sequence, and then we're going to spam the heck out of them. They know and you're preventing yep. a lot of people from getting in there because they're choosing not to do that. Totally. And that's why you got to flip when you think of the stages of your customer, especially from marketing to contract signing or to purchase or conversion. I don't use the word conversion generally because I just think it's totally company centric. It's not what the, the buyer's not saying I converted. Like you got to. <laughs> it's true using that phrase, the buyer's thinking, I found a solution or I resolved a need. And so it requires a deep level of empathy, humility, letting go of the ego to really think from their perspective. But if you think from their perspective and flip it on its head, it's not, you know, um, it's not awareness or, um, I mean, awareness could be it, but it's not prospect pitch and close. Then it's really like, I'm researching, I'm learning, I'm educating, I'm agreeing. And you want to use those phrases. So whenever I work with clients, always one of the things we do is we do a very simplified, very simplified version of a customer journey. It's a one page image at a glance, all visual. Um, journeys can get really complex, but specifically marketing to sales, we simplify by saying at each of those three stages, at the point of being a total cold lead or prospect, to the point of being a qualified lead, to the point of being a buyer, 
what is the one question in each stage that they're wondering? And how can you phrase your language to be in line with what they're wondering? If you do that, and if you really get a deep, deep pulse on what they're wondering and needing at that time of their experience, you will get better results. Uh, it's, it's the long game, it's the more sustainable game. Um, I'd rather, I don't know about you, I'd rather deal with a thousand clients than a hundred thousand clients. And so it's just a choice you have to make as a business owner. Oh, hundred percent. Especially for, you know, a lot of people listening are B2B. It's not about selling, you know, eight, 800 million rolls of toilet paper. We're just trying to sell maybe eight or 80 things this year to big, big companies. Um, you know, I wanted to go back to something cause I want to touch on this one pager thing and the idea of planning, but also just going back to the words, I get the sense that the words we use matter. They matter to you. They matter the process conversion. It, it, it solidified for me when you said I was converted, like said no one ever. Right. I've yeah. never even done that. And I, and I do forms on purpose if I like them. Cause I'm like, I like this form. Um, I've never, you know, shouted Eureka, I've converted. I've, I've never said that. And I don't know what words I have said, but the idea of learning, educating, do you, do you ever have to, you know, rewire people's minds when you're working with them to, to and do you ever have them actually change so, the column titles? And I, love, I love that you answered it, asked this question because um, one of the things I often say to my clients is it's not what you change, it's how you change. Mm. Um, and so what I find, one of the, one of the activities I, or exercises I do is um, plotting out the customer for life cycle journey. And so what that means is it's a fundamental tool to the Toyota production system and the Toyota way, which is my background. And the idea of it is if you incrementally improve the customer experience over time, you create customers for life. So depending on what industry you're in, um, your lifetime value of a customer will differ. But let's say your lifetime value of a customer is three years. The question is, how much value are you getting out of one customer? Are you getting point, you know, or are you getting like 50% value? So if it's three years, you're only getting a year and a half. Are you getting a quarter, you know, a 25% value? And let's maximize that value because I would rather get more out of one customer than have to go after and chase another customer to put into my pipeline. Totally. It's actually shown that we spend eight times as much uh, expenditures on getting someone else into our pipeline than it would take to add value to our existing customer. So I believe that every business's biggest asset right now is their existing customer base. And especially in a COVID world, like where sensitivity to sales is very high, that the more you can just lean into your customer base and understand their needs because everyone's customer base needs are changing right now. It's not that they don't want to be sold to. It's just what you did before may be less relevant. And if you really look inward and ask them, what do they need from us? What is it that we could do to go above and beyond? Even if that means it goes outside of our scope of our normal work and then deliver that, that's where you raise above or rise above a traditional industry and operation that you are. So if you're financial services and you find out, hey, our customer base um, is really looking to understand how to manage their families while they're home or how to manage their families during the summer because none of the camps are open. And hey, let's do an online training camp for kids about financials, like, or about, you know, finances or budgeting. Like imagine, I mean, I got goosebumps just thinking about that and I just came up with that. 
Like if I was a, a customer of that financial services fund, I'd be like, wow, that they really understand what I'm going through. I haven't seen anyone else do that. And that really elevates the relationship. So it's more about that loyalty and them understanding each other than it is about the transaction of a financial services firm. And so that's where, that's the ultimate goal of this is loyalty, repurchase, referral, maximizing the lifetime value of your customer base rather than just constantly, you know, trying to crank the engine like a cog in the wheel and treating people like machines. Totally. Back to that. I love the example that you just sort of invented. Like, what if we did this for our customers? Makes me think, like, oh, what do our customers really need? I want to drive things, but I have a practical um, challenge for you on that. And I wonder, you know, how you dealt with it in Toyota. The idea of, okay, for marketing, we want to focus on, we want to get the loyalty, the repurchasing, the referral. Our customer journey extends beyond the first purchase, but now they're dealing with our operations team or our account management team and, and they're owned by someone else. And, and then how do you, you know, show interest or try to affect change in that if, if, if you know, the natural response back is, no, 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 you know, ops has that or our uh, retail team has that, you know, hands off. Well, Casey, this is the question. Yes. It's not what we change, it's how we change. So the irony is that I, I work with a lot of companies that have brilliant ideas. They have brilliant product ideas. They're genius with automation. I mean, they're incredible programmers, but if they're not changing effectively, none of those ideas or solutions matter. So changing effectively is more around what I call one team alignment. So how do you operate as one team rather than silos? And this is experienced by transferring the company from a company-centric mindset to a customer-centric mindset. So I do two things at the start of every one of my projects. One, we outline the customer for life cycle. It's almost impossible, never in the history of any of my clients have they ever been able to put to paper one image of their customer experience at a glance. They can't do it because of what you just said. They tend to say, well, your finance, as long as you take care of finance, we're good. Your marketing, as long as you take care of marketing, we're good. So one, that's the first challenge. Then we take that customer for lifecycle draft and we turn it into a workflow. Um, if you ever look at like BPMNs or workflows or um, goods and information flow, don't worry about all the buzzwords, it doesn't matter. The idea is what is the customer experiencing across all of the departments over time from the point that they become aware of the company to the point that they decide to either stay or leave the company. And if you do that at a glance, you immediately become cross-functional. And what that does by visualizing it is it makes it about the operation instead of the person. So this is one of the hardest steps. Uh, it's one of the most frustrating. It creates a lot of friction. But why we always did that Toyota and why I always do it with my clients is because that's the hardest part. But once you get to that stage where you can speak to the process and you can say, this is what the customer is experiencing. It's not about what you are doing, it removes the blaming and the finger pointing. It removes that siloed approach and it immediately makes it about the customer. Um, and so those are the first two things that we do uh, to specifically address this. But the idea at its core is switching from what's good for the company to what's good for the customer. I like One that. that from a metrics perspective is we actually measure, uh, we build into the dashboard 
and into their financial reporting a metric around customer asset growth. So there's two parts to this. There's customer growth, value, and volume. And then there's customer loss, value, and volume. So how many and what was the total value brought to the company or lost from the company? And then the delta. So instead of just looking at did we hit our sales targets or our marketing targets, we look at what's the delta of our customer growth versus loss. So if we gained 100 customers, but we lost 50, that's not exactly positive growth. Well, it's positive growth slightly, right? Mm -hmm. But you're still losing 50% of your customer base. And if you gained in 100,000 of value, but you lost 25,000 in value, you really only gained in 75,000 in value. But we often look at the top, right? We just look at the gain. And so that's one of the metrics that from a, from a customer-centric perspective helps quantify this kind of activity. Um, because you're looking at both sides of the equation rather than just growth. And you're looking at the ultimate delta rather than a, you know, an MPS or a CSAT score, which is a whole nother conversation. It is, but I like the fact you're looking at the pro and the con. Who do we add? Who do we remove? Not, not only the, the amount or the volume, but the value too. Maybe you grew deeper relationships and you added, you know, you added less or you lost some more cust- you know, customers, but you, you like doubled down on how much they spent with you and you're yeah. more efficient. So, but seeing the big picture from those stats makes sense. Yep. And that's what we call customer uh, viewing customers as an asset. Mm. So instead of looking at customers as qualitatively, like we look at customers as an asset to the company and that's what helps shift the team from silos and departments to a cyclical approach to operations. And if you want, um, there's examples of this. I have a, um, a landing page up because oh, cool. of COVID. it's basically just my name, Hillary Corna forward slash restart. And there's all these exercises in downloadables that you can use, but that will help um, make it more visual for you. You said slash free start. Is that the restart? Oh, restart. S T A R T. Okay, cool. And Hillary is with one L. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, because I was trying to find the notes for today's show. And I'm like, where are they? I know I've talked to you. <laughs> and then I, I use your last name and I found them. And I thought, aha, I've, I've remembered this. Now people can remember me forgetting them. Now you'll type it right for the rest of your lives. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go back to the, the, the one-page customer journey. Because it sounds like you eventually get you know, super detailed and complex and process. How do you boil it down into like a one-page? Because I love the simplicity of it. It sounds challenging. Uh, you know, it's funny because whenever people start this activity, they're, they want to go deep into the details. They're like, look at my process docs, look at our beautiful workflows. And the irony is like, that's the easy part. The details are easy. The hard part is simplifying. So our goal is to create a one pager that can be customer facing and internal. So that at a glance, customers and employees can understand what every single customer's default experience is. Um, That's what we call the customer for life cycle. From there, we roll it out into the customer journey. So customer for life cycle is a circle, looks like a wheel. Um, It's all about closing the loop. So really addressing those points that you lose customers, the major critical points in their experience and closing the loop to retain and maximize lifetime value of the customer. I have a visual I'll show you from a, a um, customer journey perspective. Once we have that cycle, then we flatten it out into something that looks like this. Oh, cool. So 
if you just think of anyone who's just listening, there's basically stages. So customer for life cycles, pre-sales, post-sales, and repurchase and follow-up. So this is every stage within those three major experiences out into a linear path. But we start with cyclical to, to really, um, really flip the mindset of operations from linear to operations that are cyclical and generating loyalty. And then we roll it out into these stages. Now, what you see here is at the top is the customer centric perspective. At the bottom is the company centric perspective. This is what I was referencing earlier. So from a company centric perspective, we talk about, Hey, these are our prospects. This is when we pitch or sell. This is when we negotiate. This is when we close. This is our service. This is our resell. From the top, what the customer is wondering is, I have a need to be filled. I'm figuring out my options. I make my decision. My need is fulfilled. And I experience and fulfill and feel value. So we have to separate those to see the difference between companies that grow based on just uh, what's best for them versus companies that grow through serving their customers and viewing their customers as an asset. I love the word changes too. I mean, just to even be thinking about it. Okay. This is how a company prospect stage or, you know, close them down Casey, but really it's like, I have a decision to make and I'm weighing my options. Now I need to actually make that decision. Now I'm really hoping that it, whatever I was thinking I was going to get, I'm actually going to get. And then. And to your point, to your point about the silos, which is one of my ultimate goals is like to remove silos from organizations and to really operate more as one. And to your point, customers don't experience departments. Customers experience a company. And so it's really important to seamlessly integrate the experience so that they feel like they're having an effortless experience. So there's research that shows what company, what customers want more than satisfaction is effortlessness. They want it to feel like it was easy. And where companies often fall short is the handoffs between the different departments. So customers will have a great sales experience and then they get handed off to service and it's just like buyer's remorse. Like, what did I get myself into? Or they have a great service experience and then they get handed off to, you know, a, a customer advocacy and it's just getting plummeted with emails or, you know, the greatest example of this is when you go to college and then the alumni network comes chasing you for money, that's repurchase and, re- and follow up. Right. But like, I always tell my alumni agency and I, they know me really well. I'm like, what have you done for me recently? Go do something for me and I'll give you more money. But I've already paid for my college education like right. 15 years ago. So if you want need to give more money. This is not about a nonprofit. I know you're a business, right? I'm not ignorant. You are a business rolling in profits. So if you're going to ask me for more of my money, then you better give me more value. And oh, so we want to remove totally. those department, like uh, different differentiating or variable experiences from the departments. 100%. Alumni could learn from you. They should need to sign up for your seminars because <laughs> they're not thinking about the customer life cycle. No. Other thing, where were they when I was actually going to school and maybe I needed some help or I needed something? Nowhere. Where was I when I was trying to find a job? Nowhere. Doing nothing. All they're doing is coming and begging afterward, you know, and maybe they're giving a few people some significance because they get to be on some board somewhere. But yeah, like actually, and I was, I was actually, I'm kind of pissed at my school, honestly, because you know, I just like so angry at it. And then to have alumni come, come over and be like, Hey, give us money. It's like, to your point, I already paid for this thing. I already paid for this thing. And 
and now you're treating me nicely or um, you know, now you want to give people awards and send them all these things when you want money from them. But earlier I was, I was a number to you. Duh. Customers experience, that. Customers experience that all the time True. where, you know, you, they felt like a number and mm. if you treat them like a number, they will treat you like a number. And that's when you have that transactional relationship. And that's when you don't have loyalty. They're just basically competing with, they're looking at companies and you're competing based on price. Yeah. So you want to get to a point where like your price isn't even questionable. When COVID hit, one of the things I advise companies is like overly give right now because you need to retain your customer base. And we're still in that stage. It will be cheaper for every company right now to do whatever they can to retain or at least provide a discount to customers than it is to lose a customer. It's more costly to lose a customer and have to go find another one. So overly give, figure out what their needs are. What can you give away for free that's fast and easy so that they don't even question your value. And as a result, some of the companies that I've worked with had customers saying, you were the first bill that I wanted to pay this month. Um, like we've, as a society, we are becoming more honorable towards people. We're becoming more respectful. We're more cultured. We're more well-traveled than ever before. And so people just want you to be kind and empathetic to what they're going through. And it's those companies that just play the numbers game that aggravate and distort the customer experience. Um, I don't know about you, Casey, but for me with business, I truly just want to wake up every day and like do my work with ease. And I believe that the companies that are really playing the numbers game don't think that way. They're the ones that buy into the hustle, the grind, the, you know, the, the influencers on IG that pay for fake airplanes to take pictures on. Like those people <laughs> don't share our values. And if you want to grow and grow consistently, and steadily with calmness and ease, like talk about your customer, focus, make every conversation about, is this better for us or is this better for our customer? What are we really driving at right now? Yeah, it, um, as painful as it was for my school to treat me like that, now I'm like, I get all like self-conscious. I'm like, oh dear God, have, you know, have, we don't want to treat I don't want to treat our customers and, I, and I'm sure people listening don't want to treat their customers like they've been treated poorly in the past. And it's like a great wake up call to think about, yeah, you know how horrible that is and how pissed off you're, you are at your, your college. Well, are you making those exact same experiences every day right now to your customers? And it's funny from a marketing perspective, I was just talking with a client yesterday and a, a, the head of marketing um, was recently promoted and he said to me, um, okay, so how can I, better market. So if we think of the customer for life cycle, it's pre-sales up to contract signing, post-sales down to delivery, and then repurchase and follow up. And that closes the loop. And he was like, how do we better market in post-sales so we're not aggravating the customer? Because yeah. if a customer's already bought from us, um, he's like, I want to increase marketing, but I don't want them to feel like, well, I'm just trying to sell you. And I said, you're asking the wrong question. It's not how do you market more? It's what do your customers need? Where are they at the stage of their journey? Are they a new customer? Have they been with you for a year? Are they a legacy customer? And what's the information they need? It's not how do we market? 
It's what the information they need. What's the product that we have that solves a new pain point of theirs? Like forget what your company is doing. Like totally think what does the customer need and what is the process that we can implement to deliver that need? And that's when you'll start marketing more effectively in post sales. Mm. I, wrote, I wrote that down because we can all think about that. What do they need? We can be so busy. And to your point, it makes their lives so much easier. Yeah. Going, going detailed is the easy part. Simplifying is the, is the hard part. Um, being busy is the easy part. Um, totally. Simplifying and doing a few things that really are what your customers need and need to know, need to see for making a decision or just helping them in their daily lives. That's the hard part, but figuring that out. How, how do you get people, they've never thought about this or they don't even know. How do you, how do you figure it out? So um, I kind of alluded to this a little earlier in terms of the workflow. The workflow is going to be one of your most powerful tools because at a glance, everyone in the company can understand what your customer is experiencing. They can see, oh, wow, why does the customer experience eight notifications immediately after contract signing? If that was me, I'd be annoyed. It becomes more visual. It becomes more objective rather than subjective. It becomes less about, hey, marketing, you're doing a shitty job and more about, wow, our customers probably aren't happy at that point of their experience. So if you can put to paper a workflow, there's amazing tools out there that are free. I specifically like Lucidchart, but that's just, you know, it doesn't matter the tool. It could be a hand-drawn, I mean, at Toyota, we used to use Post-its on the wall, but simplify, 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 stay high level in 60 minutes, get your team together. You could have a workflow with identified problems where your customer is experiencing pain. From there, you can simplify it into the stages and you can say, hey, this is pre-sales, this is post-sales, this is repurchase and follow-up. And then from there, what I would advise you to do is ask yourself two questions. <clears throat> what are the most critical points in this customer experience where either a bond is formed or customers are at risk and we have to rescue them or a stage where the customer wants something from us and we're not giving it to them. Really phrase it from their perspective in terms of what are those critical points uh, where we are falling short for the customer. Um, there will naturally be internal processes that develop where you're like, hey, um, you know, we're doing this, we're taking too long to do this, or we're taking, um, you know, too many people to do this. Right. And that's great. But this is the stage where we talk about problem framing. And how can you flip that problem to be from the customer's perspective? So if the problem is, hey, our statement of works, our statement of SOWs take too long, the framing would be, our customers have to wait too long for our statement of works. Then the problem becomes, hey, how do we work together so that they don't take so long? If you say, hey, our statement of works take too long, you're immediately pointing someone out. And so that's how, if you, if you visualize the customer experience as simple as possible, say 30,000 foot level, don't go into procedural how, but just what happens, then identify where the critical points where customers are either at risk or we have to form a bond and we're not forming it and frame the problems from their perspective, not from the, from the companies. And that's where Casey, I see the new evolution of this work in humanization is combining the methodologies around CX over the last few years 
with the methodologies around process improvement. Process improvement, the people that do it best, the lean Six Sigmas of the world, the ones that do it well know that everything should be customer centric. But the fact is we don't do it well in the States. We don't do it well in the West. McKinsey came out with a statistic that 80% of lean projects in the US fail. Lean is not even a word that comes from Toyota. It's an Americanized version of process improvement. So we will, if we go back to the core, process improvement is meant to improve people's lives. It's just as simple as that. And then as a result, you get better outcomes. But if you try to force better outcomes without improving people's lives, that's where you're going to fall short. Right. Yeah. They become a widget in your conveyor belt instead of a real person with a name and with the logical hopes and fears and dreams and all sorts of things they have swirling yeah. around in there. Yeah. We just treat them as the next lead, you know, right. and we say that, you know, we have eight leads or whatever. It's like, we quite literally say that. And so when we to overcome the siloed mentality around operations and organizations, it's bringing your organization back to who you serve. Who do you serve? What are their needs? And how do we solve those needs better than anyone else? And how do we give them experience that's effortless so that they don't have a reason to go anywhere else? Who do you serve and what are their needs? It's like, mic drop, just, just drop it and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> but then the relief comes, right? Yeah. Then you're not trying to force metrics. You're not trying to meet the goals for the month. You're not trying to, um, you know, meet demand gen goals. Like you're like, hey, how do we better serve people? Then it's like an ultimate relief. And immediately your people know ideas where you're falling short. It's just whether the question's being asked. And if you phrase the question of, are we serving them rather than why didn't you meet your goals? Why didn't you meet your demand gen or your lead gen goals? You're either pressuring someone or you're seeking to understand. It's a very different conversation. Totally. I'm guilty of that all the time. And I'm always trying to like peer into things and like zero in on where are the problems. Let's find them and squash them. And you're right. I, I'm probably, probably stepped on toes before and politics wise, the idea of, if it's about you know you or your department failing, people immediately put up defenses. They don't want to collaborate. Uh, but if it's okay, let's put all of our stuff aside. It's the customer. How long is the customer waiting for that SOW? Like, mm -hmm. let's ask about that. Hey, how long does our customer wait before kickoff? What is that experience like for them? Um, what you change shifts. It's the buy-in. It's the coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of empathy for the customer. Like that is where true sustainable change comes from. And that's where sustainable longevity of businesses come from. If you don't want to be around in three years and you want to exit your company, like you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. Yeah. But if you turn it up right now, <laughs> yeah, you don't, if you want to wake up with joy and ease and like know that you're doing good in the world and you're serving the purpose that you were meant to serve, then do this work. It seems like a, there's a lot of things to do here. If like, if you wanted people at home, jogging, whatever you're doing right now, listening to this podcast, if you were to suggest like three things to, yeah. to get started, um, what, what kind of things would you tell them? Cause I, I heard all sorts of things. The most immediate one is add a business performance metric to your dashboard that you're reporting on in your financials. That is customer, Delta growth. So not 
sales growth, but customer growth as it pertains to value and volume with customer loss as it pertains to value and volume. So what is that delta for each value and volume? Growth versus loss. Immediately, you'll know whether you're actually growing sustainably or not. Are you, is your pipeline just as leaky as your growth funnel is strong? Um, ideally, you don't wanna be losing any customers and it's truly important to keep that ideal situation in mind. The moment you start saying, well, this is normal, you're gonna be bound to fail. Uh, ideal situation is you're constantly adding customers and you're not losing a single customer. Right. So first add that metrics okay. to your, your reporting, to your monthly leadership team meetings. Then I would pose the question of how reliable is our existing customer experience? How consistent is it from a customer's perspective? And if we think of a cyclical approach of pre-sales, post-sales, repurchase and follow-up in a cycle, where in these experiences are we most consistently falling short? What you will often find is just like a manufacturing process, instead of a, a widget going through a process, it's a person going through a process. And if you have a problem earlier in the process, it'll snowball into 18,000 nth number of other problems in post-sales repurchase follow-up. And so what you'll find is most of the problems will come in pre-sales, but you have to pose the question, where are, we, where are we most unreliable in our experience from the customer? If your team finds that the unreliable parts are happening in repurchase and follow-up or in services, that doesn't mean the root cause is happening there. That means the problem surfacing there, but the root cause may have happened in setting expectations with the customer or gathering the right information. And so I would, the second thing is just simply pose a question in these three major stages of our customer experience that every company has, where are we most unreliably delivering a, or delivering an inconsistent experience? And then the third question I would pose is where, we call this um, a, um, a defect pipeline. Where in this experience are we losing the most customers? There's usually about six to eight points where you lose customers. Either not, you didn't get them enough information on the front end during marketing. You didn't act fast enough and they were, you know, searching around for companies. Um, it's usually during follow-up. It's usually during closing. And then it's usually later in post-sales um, when they don't want to renew. So those are four of the main ones that typically show up. But the question I would pose is where are basically around customer loss, where do we have a defect pipeline? Where are we experiencing defects? Because we're losing customers. Um, so defects is one of, if anyone has ever studied the trade away, defects is one of the eight waste, um, a type of waste around lean, Six Sigma, process improvement methodologies. Again, lean does not come from Toyota, but because people recognize it, I'll use that word. Um, and so the idea is just like in manufacturing, you have a defect, you can have that with customers too. So those are the three things I would say. Well, that's a, that's a bite size. Like I can wrap my head around that. It's like, okay, cool. One, two, three. And you know, to that part, you even you're starting, right? You're getting started. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this yeah. yeah question for you. Do you see a, what's the future of this, uh, the future of, Businesses, are people getting the message? 
what do you see coming around the bend in like the next several months, years? Where do we go? So what do you think? <laughs> what do I think? Um, ask a question back. It's like the question. Have you ever played the question game? Of course. The question game. Like I've done this with friends where as soon as they say a statement, you're like, ha, you lose. It's not, you didn't come back at me with a question. Um, yeah, I would come back at you and say, you know, specifically, you know, with the human, I feel like it's, um, I think it's kind of like table stakes. I think it's getting more and more. We're so used to Netflix and human emails and easy shopping, effortless Netflix and Amazon that when things don't go right, we're more sensitive to it. And when we're treated a little bit inhumane and when we're not treated like a, a customer, then we, kind of like more and more sensitive to it you know like the buyer is getting more and more sensitive to thinking about maybe just me because i'm a marketer but like i feel like i'm everyone's kind of more aware of what's going on and if if you treat them poorly they 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 notice it and they take it more personal personally yeah so have you experienced that recently with a company as an example have i experienced that recently with a, co with a company um, I don't know. I, I mean, I've been so locked in my house lately that mostly it's been Amazon and they've done a good job for me, but I know for a few people, they, they're, the shipping dates have been like, Oh, we're going to get it to you within a week or whatever, whatever, however long. Oh, actually. Yes. Um, uh, I ordered this hat, this hat right here. Um, lucky brand hat, uh, black clover hats and I love these hats. So comfortable. They look cool. Amazing. So much fun. Tony Robbins wears one, like all that good stuff. Um, and I got an email saying your hat will be here within 24 hours, right? It was part of their normal drip campaign, I bet, is what I'm theorizing. And it was not even close. It came a week later. I'm okay. I get it. Hey, ship the medical supplies. Totally cool with that. But because their email said automatically your hat will be arriving today, I was like, well, wait a minute. And, and I ended up pinging them twice was nice about it but i ended up going to the site and being like hey the email says my hat's here today but like, i don't see it they're like oh well you know shipping and covid i'm like yeah i know but just is it coming i guess they're like yeah yeah it'll be there at some point and then i ended up doing it a little bit later on and eventually it showed up but it was just a little bit of that like you know ah, i don't know how you solved that other than like stop that thing but that was a that was a transition point i guess no one had thought of yeah, so that's a great example of just where communication is so important because it's not like you wouldn't have understood had they yeah. left. And this is where the difference here is where the worlds of CX and process improvement are merging. You can't just do CX and you can't just do process improvement. I, ironically, they're really one and the same. If you go back to their core, they're one and the same. However, we are uh, a society of wanting to grow and evolve, and so models develop, and then before you know it, they're separated. Um, I had someone recently tell me, I said, okay, so you're ahead of CX? And he said, well, I'm ahead of CX for onboarding. And I was like, oh God, you gotta be kidding me. Like this is, you, you got it all, your company has it all wrong. Like, oh no, so he was only CX for, he was siloed. Totally siloed, which is just gonna lead to the same results. And so to your point, we are in a state where our society is expecting the, pros, the product to be, or service, to be delivered as promised. That's the expectation. So if you want to grow, if you want to be more than your competitors, and you want to become a market leader, even if you just want to kick ass in your business, 
you will not grow by only delivering the product and services promised. So you have two challenges here. The consumer expectations have increased. You can't really get away with delivering um, ineffectively because your consumer has literally endless, infinite op uh, options to jump hop ship to, right? Yeah. So go to another hat company. They can go to another delivery service. Um, and their lead time to forgive you is also shortened. So this is not, hey, we are, um, you know, people are first cultures and we are, you know, going back to our core. This is actually an evolution of society where society, their behaviors, our behaviors are changing. Therefore, our expectations are changing in a way that's never been before. And so one, you've got to solidify reliable, consistent experiences. You have to deliver the product and service as promised because you will only get forgiven by your customers for so long. So that's the reliability piece. And then two, you have to implement concepts around customer centricity because the moment your customer starts to feel like they're a transaction, they'll treat you as a transaction. If you start to penny pinch them, they will penny pinch you really simple. Um, that's different from process improvement. So one, you got to make sure you're delivering the product and services promise and two, flip your operations on its head, make everything about the customer. And how do you over, uh, how do you elevate the company so that you're better than competitors and you lead the market instead of respond to it is by having a deep pulse on your customer. What do they need? What do they need to now? What do they need now? Uh, what's the cadence in which your customer changes? Right now, the restaurant industry, that constituency is changing every day. It's still, it's been changing every day for like three months. And those POS companies, merchant services companies, any vendors that work with restaurants that aren't meeting the demands of their cadence of change um, will fall short. The, totally. the restaurant somewhere else, they don't have time. If you're talking about the construction industry, that's a little bit more latent, right? So their cadence of change is probably every three months right now, maybe every two months. So really getting in the head of your customer, what do they need? Where are we not delivering? And how can we get ahead of their needs so that we deliver on surprise or you know, by wowing them? Sometimes people say moments of delight, but that's more so like differentiation. That's a different conversation. But really getting at a cadence of change that matches them instead of, Hey, we're on 90 day sprints or, you know, the cadence of change of the company. That's a good point. Being able to match them because they may change. I mean, it's the companies that set like the year long marketing plan. It's like, well, we don't even know, like whatever plan you set in January of 2020, you are probably not still with And if you are, you probably should change it. It's a different kind of year than you thought it would be. Exactly. Uh, adjust and adapt for sure. And some have sped up and then they slow down. So it's always variable, right? Um, when, when COVID first hit, manufacturing, the cadence of change was crazy. And then it slowed down and then it got crazy again. So it's like your, your customers are fluid. And if you just stay rigid, you're going to get behind because your competitor is going to come in and do something better than you. Totally. Totally. This is, this is like a fun conversation, fascinating conversation. Uh, my next question really is like, who are you? How did you become this guru of human centricity? Yeah. Can you take yeah. us back? Take us back to like 
the little days, you know, little Hillary running yeah. around. Were you always concerned with the, the human side of the process? And I was always concerned with humans. Um, I was very much always an outsider, but I always got along with everyone. And so I have vivid memories of um, being in grade school. And if someone was like in the corner of their room by themselves, I would go up and like invite them over. Awesome. <laughs> I was just very, very, um, you know, you could use the word empath. I'm de I definitely am a feeler, ENFJ all the way. Um, and so I have that logical mindset to me. I have that linear mindset, but then I also have the relator side of, to me. And so I'm kind of, I think in a, I'm, I am very much positioned in a, in a point in my world and career and role that I feel in the very unique ability to do what I do. Um, and then from a, from a more cultural perspective, my grandma lived in Japan for seven years and my mom was a kid at the time. And so the Japanese culture really influenced my family. And as a result, like I always saw this different world in a way that none of my peers had. I'd go to my grandma's house. I had to take my shoes off at the front door and there were, you know, oil paintings of dragons on the wall, which is a significant symbol in Japanese culture. And, um, and uh, just, she very much took on traits and behaviors of Japanese culture. And so as a young kid, I just asked a lot of questions and began to learn and teach myself. And um, I had a few role models over my years that like were connected with Japanese culture for different variable reasons. And so I just incrementally grew a fondness towards it and then started studying the language when I was 18 fell in love with the language, totally geeked out. Nice. And way too much time studying it. And then that's eventually how I um, started my career with Toyota. And I was very fortunate at Toyota because uh, we were based in Singapore, which was a regional office. So there are no entry level positions when you're working at a regional office. Like you're working with, across 14 Asian countries. Um, every job in the, in the company traveled for work. They represented different countries. We represented all 14 in um, operations Kaizen and process improvement. And so you were immediately working with SVPs, EVPs, head of distributors. Um, we immediately had contact with headquarters in Japan in terms of like they would often come visit our projects and see how we were doing and learn from us. And then we would take what we were doing from a regional perspective and we'd bring it to other regions. So we brought some of our work to Vancouver, to Mexico, uh, to Nicaragua. And so just immediately threw myself into this work and worked with some of the most sophisticated minds in the space that are the original thinkers to all of this. So I think <clears throat> looking back, what really happened is like, I learned the fundamentals. And once you learn the fundamentals, it doesn't matter what cool new operating model or um, <clears throat> structure or framework someone creates, like yeah. the fundamentals don't change. But what is changing is society. And so we have to adapt the fundamentals to that. And so I worked for, you know, a benchmark of leadership style that most never experienced in their lifetime. And it's just really hard to ever leave that once you experience it. And the cool thing is, and I'll leave you with this, is just simply that, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that underneath the facade of all of Toyota's expertise and um, know-how and um, 
the Toyota production system and the Toyota way, underneath it all, Toyota will say, we don't think this is our secret sauce. Our secret sauce is how we treat people. Hmm. And so they don't, again, it's back to not what you change, it's how you change. So they don't pride themselves in their efficiency or their productivity or their quality level. They pride themselves in that the ideas came from the bottom up, that they generate up over a million ideas a year from their frontline staff, um, that they have channels of communication to take those ideas and implement them. So it's how they change. And so they invite competitors to the manufacturing plants. They invite competitors and dealers to the dealerships to see what they're doing because they don't believe that their secret sauce is in the car or their manufacturing techniques. It's in the ability to execute on those techniques, just like automation. Automation itself is amazing, but you can use automation to do horrible things. And so it's more about how do you change and use automation to do good rather than the actual tool itself. Right, right. Huh. It's funny, just that exposure early on in your life to Japanese culture with your grandmother planted a seed and it and it sounded like whatever you know it sounded like even the the whole family sort of kind of it met a need of a little bit of all of you just as you grew up and for you you just really latched onto it but it was something about that culture and personality that really appealed to you yeah you know I mean when I think of some of the difference between the east and the west that really influenced this space and this work um you know in the west we love one-time initiatives in the East, it's all about incremental change, mm. about making, taking small steps over time that are planned and with ease and calmness. And so that's like the difference between when we hear the word agile. I'm not going to do it down that rabbit hole because we'll be here all night. But when we talk about agile, in the West, immediately things come to mind like act fast, move fast, change fast. And the irony is like agile is a in my mind is actually more about um, incremental change and being more intentional. And so, yeah, it's about change, but it's not about forced change or just change for the sake of changing. Um, it's being more intentional and building in incremental change so that you're not stuck in the same status quo. And so there's a lot of things between the East and the West that are very fundamentally different. The one-time initiative versus incremental change is one of them. Um, in the West, it's very much, we, we, I kind of say we both times. So it's a bit of an identity. Crisis. No, that's cool. No, you get to be a uh, double we. <laughs> double we, you know, we tend to think more about what's good for the company. And in the East, it's more about, you know, people first or improving people's lives. And so there's just really, a, really because I, I guess I, I haven't perceived that in, I haven't seen behind the scenes and anyone really but so in in the east it, it, it's not just a namesake it really is more about the customer whenever we do process improvement the first thing we do is observe the customer experience with no bias we walk into a dealership and we just act as a customer call it mystery shopping whatever yeah. but we go through the customer experience and then we observe unfiltered what the customer is experiencing and then we go in and guide conversation around the workflow of where are we falling short as a company. But everything is about improving people's lives. So as an example, um, one of the projects we did was in delivery of vehicles way back in the heyday. This was like 11, 12 years ago. <clears throat> Still relevant now. And you can, you can relate this to any delivery of service or product. 
but um, we were pushing this project and we found like there was something, some gap happening with the insurance approval process for whatever reason, it, it was taking forever. Um, and we found the root cause, we implemented a change, but we didn't realize that the woman that sat next to the insurance approval gentleman, um, we couldn't get her to help us and we didn't know why. Um, and she was giving us a lot of attitude and like it was just constant struggle. So one day I went down to her workspace and we had been back by his workspace a lot. And we were like looking, how is he sorting the files? You know, whatever, whatever. Um, but we hadn't looked at hers and we needed her in a very important step right before that to do something. Well, we go back there and her desk is so close to the wall that her knees were hitting her desk and she had like bruises on her knees. And I was basically like, why are you seating this way? And she's like, well, there's no more room. I'm like, we can make room. Right. So I pulled the GM down. We shifted all the desks. We made room for her. And like, she started crying. And so why I tell this story is because from that moment onwards, anything we needed from her, we got. She was seamless, flawless, easy to work with, amazing. But she first it appeared to her at first that we were just doing something to get better outcomes. And so the moment we said, we really took her into consideration and said, instead of saying, Hey, why aren't you doing this, do this more often? And we look, we took into her consideration, her perspective and like physical perspective and we changed her life for the better. She was easy to work with. Um, and so all of us have these things happening in our businesses where we're just saying, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? When really there's a reason they're like disgruntled towards something else, or you said something earlier on that rubbed them the wrong way. And like, if you just reframe the conversation to be, Hey, how can this process make your life easier? How can we make your job easier? Then that completely changes the conversation for that person. So every time I work with my clients, I'll, I, we'll have like one-to-ones or whatever with some of the leadership team and I'll ask them very directly. I'll say, what is your need in all of this? And how is this initiative or this activity helping make your job easier? And that makes a more smoother experience. So they don't feel like I'm just trying to push more numbers out of them. So yeah, if, if you're doing process improvement the right way, fundamentally, that is what every improvement starts with is how can we make people's lives easier? Yeah, I can, I can picture it. a bunch of executives on the, 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 the line at the factory, just looking and observing and watching the people and somebody has an improved, improvised wrench because they never got one and they don't, and they made a better one. And they're like, huh, but going there, it, what an interesting story about the knees and to be able, that must've been a cool, I mean, probably a great feeling, right? To be able to have yeah, made change from people's lives like that. Well, I mean, and like even yesterday in the conversation about the marketing guy, like when I, he, he asked me almost embarrassed, like, how do I market better to post sales? And he was embarrassed that he couldn't figure it out. Sure. And I basically was like, listen, you're, it's not how you can do your job better. It's how can you better serve and improve the lives of these people? And then it's like, oh, I'm not doing anything wrong. And it just completely removes the root, the weight on people's shoulders of having to reach and achieve certain outcomes. 
And then the irony is you get better outcomes on the other side. Right. Wow. So you get to do this. Do you still, do you still visit Asia and do you? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Is your Japanese still spot on? (laughs) No, definitely not. But I can shoot the shit. I can surprise some Japanese folks sometimes. Um, but yeah, we, once you're Did in you ever Toyota, pull out like an EO tanky Desne? Oh, sugoi ne. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you know some Japanese? Oh, uh, well, no. So I started, you know, my experience with it was similar to yours, not with my grandmother, but just through karate as a, as a child. Cool. So you got an exposure to that culture. It was a Japanese Okinawan style of karate. So, you know, learn the Ichni, Sanchi, and <laughs> all that. And, you know, Gozaimasu and all sorts of different words. You, we actually, at the end of class, we always thank the teacher for teaching us. That's awesome. Which was interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I've, always, I've always found it appealing. I had a chance to, to um, do a project where I trained a distributor in Tokyo. And I, I feel like I had a glimmer of what you talked about visiting Singapore, which by the way is an amazing place. But mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, to work with a bunch of people, oh, quick Japanese story, right? Business cards, right? Are they still important? To stay. Oh yeah, oh okay. yeah. So yep. I knew this going over there, and so I brought a bunch. I was just a, like a young kid; I was a trainer, technical trainer guy. Uh, but I knew this was important, so I brought a bunch of them, and I gave everyone the card. And by the way, I do love how they, they look at the card, they stare at the card, and for everyone out there, like if somebody gives you a business card, don't just put it in your pocket, even if you're not Japanese. Show some. Go ahead. I think it- it's just really simple. Like people, it all comes down to people want to be seen and heard. And if you can do that more intentionally throughout your experience, whether it's marketing, sales, onboarding, delivery, it's like that is what people remember. Yes, they want results. However, they expect results. The more you can pay attention to them and make them feel seen and heard, the better. And I see examples of this all the time. Like Orange Theory is one of the case studies I use in all my presentations. Oh, yeah. Tell me about it. Well, listen, I could freaking talk about this company all day long. They're brilliant. Um, But one of the things they do is like whoever who hasn't been before, in the middle of class, if if you're a first timer, in the middle of class, the receptionist comes in and checks on you. They're like, how are you doing? Are you all right? Do you need water? And I was like sweating. I'm like, oh my God, this is an amazing customer experience. And it's, it's not customer service. It's, it, this is very deliberately designed. In the same way Starbucks deliberately designs a process that says, we're going to sign a person's name on their cup. Yes, it's an SOP. It's a standard operating procedure, but it is a humanized one. They make everything else rigid so that that can be special, even if they misspell it, right? It's still appreciated, even when they misspell it. So Orange Theory does this thing, they come in the middle of class, then they end the class, they don't talk about pricing right away, they ask you how you're doing, they ask you about your experience. It's obviously, I do this stuff for a living, so I'm very observant more than Me too. a consumer, but I'm very observant that they specifically don't talk about price until the end of the conversation. Um, they have a clipboard and it's a visual. So they, it's really easy to understand like how, um, not what the packages look like. That's usually what happens in these kinds of industries. It's what does their experience look like when you join? This is what you, this is who you become. Um, over time, you'll reach these certain levels and they get you excited and you're like, 
freaking A, this is awesome. Yeah, tell me how much it is. I, I, I don't even care how much it costs. And then, I mean, they have so many of these details, but one of the things that they do that's amazing also is when you come back for your second class, they have a whiteboard that has your name and like calls you out. I forget the phrase they use, but they have a phrase and they call you out and it's like, welcome back. And then other people in that class welcome you. And you're like, oh my God. And so it, again, it just, it's making people feel seen, need and heard. Now, if Orange Theory didn't deliver results, that really wouldn't work for very long. Mm -hmm. And we've been there where apartment complexes are the perfect example. They, they just pride themselves on all their amenities, but they don't do the basics of what you want out of a Skyrise apartment. But they have a movie room and a pool table. People don't give a shit about that. That's like add-ons. So those are great add-ons if you get the delivery right. So first deliver a consistent experience, make sure you're not falling short, and then move into the differentiation, which is the humanization and making people feel seen and heard. Amazing. Amazing. That's crazy. Um, oh, oh, um, Jap the Japanese thing. Talk more about Japan. Um, I ran out of business cards. Wait, what happened? I, I, get, I, had, I had a whole bunch of them and everyone came over and I bowed with them and we oh, no. cards. Everyone in the room got one. And then a half an hour later, the boss of all of the bosses of all the people that were there that I gave a card to showed up and I didn't have one. And they're all very gracious, but I felt like a tool because I knew better. And I was just like, oh my goodness. No, bring twice as many. Bring oh, never no. know. Because sometimes people only want cards you know, in, the, in, the, in the West. Like if you've met them or, you know, I don't need your card, but there it was that formalized ceremony of like, I didn't really meet you until we've exchanged cards, which you know, to, to anyone who buys into this idea that people don't want business cards, the next time you're out, you know, hopefully in a post COVID world and you're networking and someone gives you their business card, take it, read it, ask them a question about it and say, Oh, so, according to this, you're so-and-so or you're in this position or the company's been around for this long. Tell me more about that. And you tell me that that means nothing to the other person. Like it, it just all goes back to, if it means nothing, if, if you assume it means nothing, and if you assume that paying attention to the details is not important to the other person, it doesn't matter the tool. Like it could be a resume and you just throw your resume away. It could be you know, a LinkedIn profile, like if you don't, if you just act as though that doesn't, it doesn't exist, like there's an opportunity to get value there or you're rejecting the value. And so, um, I just don't buy into that. I think it's just where people have gotten lazy and they've become more objective about their networking, that this has to be again, efficient or, you know, straight to the point when it's like, no, I bet you could get more out of that relationship if you actually show these persons that you care about who they are, not just what they do. 100% and not go around trying to collect business cards, but maybe have a couple yeah. quality conversations. Yeah. You can do it from the opposite perspective as well. 100%. Where are some great places people can reach out and connect with you? URLs, social platforms, all that. Sure. So um, there's a few of the downloadables we mentioned today. If you want to use those in your team, there are free uh, they are free on the website, hillarycorna.com forward slash restart. Um, again, Hillary with one L. Uh, thank you very much. Um, in terms of social, I will say it like this. 
I write the most on LinkedIn. So if you prefer that platform, that's where I spend the most time writing. I'm the most personal on IG. Uh, and I'm usually the most opinionated and funny on Twitter. So it depends what you're going for. You can find me on whichever platform you prefer or what you're looking for. But fortunately, there's only one of me in the world, so you can find me on all of those. As far as um, my work, I have a newsletter called The Human Way, and it's all about building a tribe and a movement around people that want more humanization in the business world. More kindness, more empathy, more ease, more joy. Um, and more realness. And so the human way newsletter to sign up for that, you can just go to hillarycorner.com forward slash connect. There it is the human way. Yes. And just to throw it out there this fall, I'm releasing my second book, which is the rise of the human centric era, all focused on tools and techniques that businesses can use to really get ahead of their uh, competitors and become market leaders in their space. And that is planned for release this fall. Um, and so if you just sign up at, uh, Hillary corner forward slash connect, you'll get in on that. That's cool. We'll have to have you come back on here, right? Right. As it's about to launch so we can put in a little promo and talk about it and that kind of thing. I would love to, I'm going to keep it short, actionable, implementable, 120 pages. Let's do this thing. Well, I was going to say you can keep the book short, but you can't keep the podcast short. We could talk oh. for days. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's my nemesis talking. Yeah. Yeah. Nemesis or it could be your best friend. <laughs> for sure well Hillary thank you so much for coming on here this has been so much fun oh thank you it has been fun for me too you know and for those people listening if they've learned something and I know you guys have I know you freaking have because I literally have two pages of notes and Hillary I ran out of so much paper I oh had to God. like I just I, it's like I almost give up because there's like not enough room type those uh, up do you say type those up yeah uh, we do have show notes yeah for sure. Um, but, but the ones that I write, some of the ones that I scribble, they're like, all oh, yeah. like special, but yeah, I, I should sell access to them. No, 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 don't sell access. Don't, don't market it. Just, just give it away. Give it away. But yeah, I should scan them. Cause they're like these little scratchy notes. And listen, if something's valuable and someone will pay, it's okay, but it should not sure. be used. I see this all the time too. Like, it's like, um, what's the phrase you just used? Market everything. Yeah. Yeah. But Basically, the phrase around monetization. Oh, you got to monetize that. Okay, oh, hold, yeah. hold up. Hold up. <laughs> this out right here and right now. Is this valuable to the customer? Yes or no? And if it is, how much value? What's it worth to him? 50 bucks? 100 bucks? I just paid some stranger on LinkedIn for a $50 playbook on how to strengthen your LinkedIn profile because that's fucking awesome. I'll pay 50 bucks for that. So it's not about how to monetize or how to market it and sell it. It's, hey, is this valuable? Is it not? If it's valuable, how much is it worth? And charge that Boom. price. Simple as that. Charge your price. Incredible. Fantastic. So <laughs> good. I'll have to figure out what to do with these notes. All right. Um, and uh, maybe we just, maybe that's a start of a new tradition here. Who knows? Yeah. You're doing great things. Keep it up. Yeah. Thanks. And thanks for being on here. And for those listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll catch you all next time. 